bold and raw perspectives of local politics. Important information which impacts our community, nation, and world. Exposing truth, transparency, and getting to the heart of relevant issues that you just won't see in the clickbait media. And always keeping it real. It's the Michelle Tanner Podcast. But I won't back down. Welcome, welcome to the Michelle Tanner Podcast. We've got an awesome, awesome episode today. We are going to be talking about the economy and some other awesome things with my amazing guests. But before I get to that and introduce you, I wanted to let y'all know about a few announcements. So this Thursday at 6 p.m., at St. George City Hall is the bond hearing. So a lot of you have probably been hearing about the geo bond that's going to be on the ballot this November. The election is November 21st. Don't forget that day. Very important election. But if you want to speak on behalf of this geo bond, whether for or against it, either way, it's a public hearing. You need to be there this Thursday at 6 p.m. As far as the geo bond, I think we should probably actually do another show. There's so many things to talk about regarding it. Um, so I'll probably try to do that before the election to do a deep dive into the geo bond. But my goal is always to educate, not to sell anyone on anything. I think we're all smart enough to make our own decisions if we are <laughs> educated on the pros and cons. And that's been my goal with the geo bond. But just know that meeting is coming up this Thursday, 6 p.m. So a few other things in regards to the local city council election. Um, I saw actually just yesterday from Equality Utah, which if you're not familiar with Equality Utah, look them up, but they are probably one of the largest leftist organizations here in the state of Utah. They donate almost exclusively to the Democrats and as far as the agenda that they push, I mean, you'll see actually on the, this questionnaire here that you have to fill out in order to actually get a rating from Equality Utah. So they posted their representatives and their candidates who received an A rating from Equality Utah. So we'll post the pictures. We have one of our own actually on that list, Danielle Larkin, who is a current councilwoman here in the city of St. George and also running for re-election. So if you read through these questions, however, it's really interesting. You know, one would actually wonder based off of, you know, the way that one would have to answer these questions to get an A rating, would it essentially mean that if you got an A rating that you believe A, the city should mandate LGBTQ diversity training? Taxpayers should fund city-hosted gay pride celebrations. The city needs an LGBTQ task force. The taxpayers should fund insurance that pays for children and adults using puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and genitalia removal surgery. The city should use forms and applications that ask if someone is a gender other than male, female, such as non-binary. The city should force private businesses to celebrate gay weddings. The city should allow men to use girls' bathrooms and showers and public facilities. These are just all questions I have based off of this questionnaire right there. And I'm told in order to get an A rating, essentially you have to agree 
with every single one of those questions. So it's not something I'm making up. The questions are right there on Equality Utah's website. These are the people. There's a few others as well on there who got an A rating. So I just think this is important information for people to be aware of um, here in our local communities, because I don't know about you, but I believe in equal rights. I don't necessarily believe in special rights that we should be having in Equality Utah. I think that would actually be a better name for Equality Utah personally. So just kind of found that interesting. Also, I noticed yesterday, now I am blocked from seeing Mayor Randall's post, but several people sent me yesterday this post. Apparently, uh, there's been some vandalism of some campaign signs of Danielle Larkin that Mayor Randall posted about. And, you know, it's kind of interesting because on that post, another candidate who has also had campaign signs vandalized, Eros Mackey, commented and asked the mayor, you know, why is it that you haven't discussed any of the other candidates' campaign signs that were vandalized? And interestingly enough, uh, Eros was actually blocked as well, along with several other people. And I guess that post is gone altogether (laughs) now, but... I mean, I think it's a legitimate question. Why would she be singling out one council member who had their their signs supposedly vandalized, which, A, I don't agree at all with vandalizing signs. It was apparently a little sticker, rainbow sticker that says something along the lines of Councilwoman Larkin supports all age drag shows, which to me, that's actually interesting. Again, I don't support vandalizing campaign signs. But it's also, you know, if that's what you align with, which, I mean, Danielle Larkin has attended all-age drag shows. I think it's pretty common knowledge at this point that that's something that she has supported. So shouldn't you be proud that that's where you align or that's where your candidate aligns? It's, It's just interesting to me. Anyway, on to more important discussions. So I have with me here... A really awesome guest. He is a former Air Force pilot. He is a commercial airline pilot. He has a degree in economics. And most importantly, he's my dad. So I want you all to meet my dad, Jace Hardy. I actually really wanted him to come on today because I talk to him a lot about the economy and I have two heroes when it comes to economics, Thomas Sowell and Jace Hardy. So I'm really glad to have my dad here. So I just, I feel like we are in difficult economic times. Like it's the brink is here. We're on the brink of something coming. So I wanted to delve into that a little bit with you. Where do you feel like we are right now? as a country, as a city, with our economy, what things do you see forecasted based off of your knowledge, um, you know, for the future, what things can we be doing to prepare? So let's just delve right in. Well, thanks for having me here, uh, Michelle. I, uh, uh, it's not something I necessarily wanted to do to come on the air, but, uh, <laughs> I had to talk him into it. You're my daughter and, and actually it's a privilege that you had me on here. And that you value my opinion so highly. 
Uh, well, you said it well. I, I feel like we are on the brink, but I'm also, through long and hard experience, reminded of the quote, and I can't remember who said it first, that your ability to remain short um, will, your ability to be short and to remain solvent uh, will be long outlasted by the market's ability to, uh, to uh, be uh, non, uh, what can I say? To be, uh, to be wrong. Mm-hmm. And so what I mean by that is, yes, we're on the brink, but this, these things can take a long time to play out. W- looking on towards the end of the decade, I don't know how we get to 2030, uh, anywhere in the position we are now. I think that before that time, we're going to have a major financial crisis. And I say that based on the fact that we're in so much debt, and not only public debt, but private debt. And so we can go back historically and look at previous times that are similar to this, and actually there are, we're known worse times than what we are now as a country. So we are in the worst financial position we have ever been in as a country. In my opinion, and I say that because the debt towards uh, the end of World War II pretty much equals where we are now as far as our federal debt goes. Right now, we're about 1.3 times our GDP, our, our, our gross uh, domestic product in, in federal national debt. And that's where we were at the end of World War II. But the difference was, was we had much larger personal savings. And so we could compensate for that during that period of time. And, and we were able to pay it off um, actually fairly rapidly. And so what happened is, is during World War II with the war effort, which helped get us out of the Great Depression and, and business and industry spun up to, for the war effort. And that was financed largely through, you know, back then it was very patriotic. My parents talked about it, buying U.S. bonds. It ended up being, being kind of a ripoff to the holders. But it, it was done for noble reasons, you know, the, it financed the war effort. Mm-hmm. And uh, so bonds in that scenario were actually a good thing, in your opinion. Well, yeah, I mean, bonds are neither a good thing or a bad thing <laughs> in and of itself. Okay, it is the way the government borrows is through is through bonds, through through fee uh, bills, notes, and bonds. Mm-hmm. They're all treasuries. Um, but but the difference is we're not in that position anymore with high personal savings and at, and and at the end of world war 2 we were able to rotate into a into an economy where all that those those factors of production rotated into manufacturing automobiles airplanes um the national highway system um and so it it translated into more productive inputs that created wealth and growth in the ensuing decades. But we're not there now. We, we, we're, in, uh, we're in debt, and sometimes debt can be good. If, if a business goes into debt to, to invest in what will re- give a higher rate of return over, you know, surpassing whatever it, that cost of debt is, then in the long run, that can be a good thing, mm-hmm. Right. But we have not been investing that way as a country. Our debt is all, it's all transfer payments. It's all, it's all up in smoke. There's nothing coming back in return. 
Um, How do we recover from that? I mean, because we're talking trillions, trillions of dollars in debt, which is hard to even fathom. Is there a way back from that? Well, to give you an idea, in the last three months, we've put three trillion more dollars on the balance sheets, on the, on the treasury balance sheets. And the reason, now there is an extenuating reason, and that's because the debt ceiling was held up until June and then finally Congress approved a, an ongoing increase in the debt ceiling, ceiling till 2025. And so they had to catch up. You know, the, the Treasury Gen- General Account, the TGA, was pretty much dry, so they had to replenish it. But that, wasn't, that was only for part of it. The other part is it, spending has been going gangbusters. You know, our budget increased. I can't remember. I, I saw one where it was 14% over the year previous. I'm not quite sure if that includes that increased, uh, the, that was increased to treasury sales or not. It's hard to but, imagine how that would even be moral that our representatives would be, you know, say sending billions over to the Ukraine while over here we're in this dire financial situation. It's, you know, not to mention all of the other senseless programs that our government funds. It's just from a moral standpoint, it's hard to even fathom getting away with that. It is a moral issue. Um, David Hume, seven, 18th century, he was a protege of Adam Smith. This is what he said way back then. He Talking about national debt, liking it unto a metastasizing cancer. If it isn't completely cut out, it will eventually consume the whole host. It must indeed be one of these two events. Either the nation must destroy public credit or public credit will destroy the nation. Wow. And, that, and that's where we are. So you ask what, what we do from here. We can only mitigate the damages. We can't, it's too late. In my opinion, we've gone beyond the Rubicon. And I'm an airline pilot. I kind of like it into aviation, you know, when you're flying the airplane. Actually, the slower you go, the less thrust you need, right? Until you get to the point where you get what we call over L over D max, lift over drag, the max um, uh, lift for the least amount of drag. And then beyond, slower than that point, you don't need less thrust. You need more thrust. And, and you get into that, that regime where if you don't recover, you get into a stall and then you fall out of the sky. And that's kind of where we are right now. And, and I, you know, we, we require way too much thrust to get out of this. Yeah. Because this is the deal. Uh, if you take the budget, $1.7 trillion just goes to, goes to defense and everything else other than to, to entitlements. Do you know what? Wow. We just put, we just have like one, our deficit this, this year was like one, one, $1 1.2 is supposed to be next year, and it's increasing. And, and this, we're, we have a wartime economy during peacetime. This is relative peacetime. Wow. So there's all kinds of things that are going to, to come up that are going to require the government to spend more money. And, uh, and uh, you know, financing that debt is, uh, is, is what, where the problem is going to be, being able to service the debt. It's, it's going to be impossible. Because what we're going to get into is a debt spiral. And actually this week, last week, we actually saw a little bit of signs of it when you saw spikes in the uh, longer-term bonds. Um, up until now, we've had yield inversion. 
which means the, uh, the short-term treasuries have actually had a higher interest rate than long-term treasuries. So the two-year, for example, about 5.5 now, and the 10-year the about 4.5. Well, then that 10-year that and the 20-year has been, been spiking. Yeah, I got to understand the bond market is huge. It's the biggest market in the world. It dwarfs the stock market. And what matters there matters the most. The stock market is not good at, as a forecaster. They look at, you know, people look at the stock market as to what's going on in the economy. It's not very good at depicting what's going on in the economy. The bond market is. Mm, interesting. You got m- trillions of dollars, you know, 80, 100 trillions of dollars betting on, on what's going to be happening in the future. And that's what interest rates are based on. Those long-term rates have been lower because forecasters know we're going to have lower growth. And uh, I was just looking this morning at, at the, the uh, Congressional Budget Office forecast for the next 10 years about where we are going to be in deficits. And then I look at their forecast growth, uh, growth rates. They're dreaming. It, you know, revenues are very – increase in revenues are – very much uh, based on growth in the economy. Mm-hmm. If you don't have growth, you don't have uh, in the economy. You won't have growth in revenues, and so uh, and so. What's going to happen as more and more debt gets put on the balance sheets? That interest rate and rates will go up, even though short term, intermediate term, we may have some corrections. So you think down. the interest rates are going to continue to go up? Overall, yes, I okay. do. I'm, and that's against what you know some. A lot of analysts are saying, but but they will, and and it's it's a kind of a supply and demand issue. Even though, you know, there just there won't be enough buyers out there of bonds of treasuries to to keep rates down. They'll have to uh, put rates up because of the because we're talking about numbers so large in financing, and it's not just us too. You know, it's, you know, the European Union, European countries are actually worse off than the United States and China the same. China is even worse off than, than uh, the EU or, or we are. And so, and so, yeah, I think in the long term, it's the, and what's going to happen is as rates go up, we're going to find ourselves in this debt spiral. This, this, it'll end up in an implosion in bonds where, where prices will have to drop which is the, the opposite of that, yields will have to go up. Mm-hmm. And, and then we're in a place where we are in that region of no return. And the only way out of it is to monetize debt. And that's highly, can become highly inflationary. Yeah. And that's what I think is the end result. In fact, if you, you know, look at some of the you know, demographers around, that, look at Ray Dalio. He's, he's been manager of one of the biggest hedge funds in the United States and also one of the more successful and admittedly, I haven't read his writings recently, but he goes into depth. He, he goes back historically what happens when nations get in this trouble. And without, with, without exception, no exceptions, they, their monetary system fails. So, so not, what does that mean to, to the average person? Because we're already experiencing right now the results of inflation and, you know, and the dollar amount we're paying for our groceries, for everything. The cost of goods have skyrocketed. So to kind of dumb this down, are you saying that we are just going to continue to see that inflation pattern go higher and higher and higher? 
No, the, you know, nothing goes in a straight line. Um, it, it won't go up higher. You know, we're, now we're talking, now when I speak in the future, an intermediate term, intermediate term to me is, is eight, you know, six to months to two years. Mm-hmm. And so in the intermediate term, no, I, I think inflation will, will stay probably about where it is. And I think interest rates will come down and interest rates in the short term, in my opinion, will for sure be coming down when we start having some, some market events and which are sure to happen. Mm-hmm. And then the, the Fed gets, you know, anxiety and they realize they have to, to reduce rates to, to, uh, right now the numbers look pretty good in the economy. In fact, I was looking at, uh, the, uh, um, consumer spending uh, numbers month on, over month, month over year, and they far exceeded what, what was forecast. But, you know, so right now everyone thinks everything is great, mm-hmm. but they don't realize if they look at, they look at the debt situation, not only national federal debt, but personal debt, it's in the negative. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, credit card delinquencies are starting to, starting to spike, you know, your average credit card rates about 20%. Wow. And, you know, you, you look at other problem areas with commercial real estate, you look at, uh, 20, I was looking at this yesterday, 33% of the Russell 2000, that's your lower cap um, publicly traded stocks, 33% are, are negative equity, meaning that they're borrowing money to pay, to, to service debt. Wow. They, they have no, so, so they're zombie companies. And so you, you can guarantee, I guarantee you over the next two, three years, you're going to see rolling cascades of more and more bankruptcies. And you're going to see some more bank failures too. Mm-hmm. You know, in the spring, you saw three or four regional banks go down. Mm-hmm. There'll be a lot more of that because, and that, that's going to come really soon, I think, because of the, uh, the fact that rates are, are uh, you know, on the front end are still much higher and they haven't been able to adjust. Right. And I don't want to get into the reasons why, but. Well, and even here locally, actually the last few months, we have had a downturn in uh, overall sales tax revenue, which has kind of put the city on alert to start pulling back some of our spending and projects. So to me, that's interesting. And I don't know if that's indicative of what's going to happen next year, if things are going to continue in that pattern. Do you have any thoughts here locally from what you've seen, you know, at a national level and a trickle down effect, if you think that's going to impact us here at the local level? I, I do. I think it will impact us. However, I'd rather, rather, rather be in St. George, Utah than LA, San Francisco oh, or some of, the, some of the other areas. So, you know, I, I think we're in a good spot, relatively speaking, but sure, it's going to affect us. It's going to affect Utah, but maybe it'll be... Um, you know, like the great financial crisis, you know, it affected Utah less than it did a lot of other places. But then again, um, you know, Utah is very heavy into tech. Mm-hmm. And I think this, this will, interest rates affect technology uh, big time because yeah. a lot of it's so leveraged. So, yeah, it'll affect us. So short but, term, you see interest rates probably coming down some, but in the more distant future, you think they're going to drastically increase? Yeah, there'll be corrections along the way. And right now, uh, on the 10-year, we hit like five, uh, 4.8 something um, the other day. 
So, and then we, we corrected a little bit. And now I notice this morning we're rallying back up to close to our previous high. And that's a previous high from, I don't know, 20 years ago. I mean, it's, I'm not sure how far back, but it's been many years since interest rates were that high. So, yeah, what's, what'll happen is the Fed always, once we get, you know, things start really breaking really bad in order to, to rescue things, they'll drop rates. It's the most immediate thing they can do. Mm-hmm. And, and also the Fed has been tightening, meaning they've been um, reducing their balance sheets. They're, they've been taking their treasuries off their balance sheets and selling it out on the open market. And, and so that's been sucking in liquidity, too. That will reverse. So, so you mean they're not just going to keep printing more money? <laughs> well, yeah, they haven't been printing. Actually, they haven't been printing for, you know, since, you know, the great deficit spending after the, after the COVID crash, mm-hmm. you know. So after, probably for the last year or so, they've been contracting. So, yeah, growth and money supply is not the issue right now. Um, it's down pretty much even or plus or minus 5%. Um, where we had peaks around 30% annualized in M2 money growth uh, right after the COVID, which, which, and that's what causes inflation. Inflation is caused by, by creation of money, that it, its growth exceeds the creation of goods and services. Mm-hmm. And that's what exactly happened during the COVID crisis. And not only that, but with that printed money, the government was putting all that, you know, cash into people's bank accounts and they were immediately going out and spending it. Right. So where the productive side of the economy was held back, the demand side was was accelerated and that's why we had had uh, inflation. So that, that process is reversed now and that's why inflation has gone down. And and I believe as things slow down, it will continue to slow down. But and so interest rates will drop. They'll go through ups and downs. Um but over over time, because because servicing the debt consumes more and more of the budget each year, you got to understand that by nine by twenty thirty, our there'll be no surplus. No, our actually there's no surplus now. But in our entitlement spending, we will have no more there in 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 what is supposed to be on the ledger sheets for mm-hmm. us to spend in entitlements. Then they'll have to take that from the general fund in addition to the fact that they don't even have uh, enough to... Right now, we're spending... This, this last year, we've spent about 8%. 8% has been borrowed money, not of, not of the federal um, outlays, but of the whole GDP, can you imagine the whole everything spent in the economy? Eight percent is borrowed by the federal government. That's what's wow. happened this last year. Wow! And so, with that going forward, now that may contract, might might get you know lesser percentage, three, four, or five percent. But at this point, it doesn't matter. We're talking about numbers so large that in order to service that debt, as they issue more treasuries. To finance that debt, they're going to have to attract buyers. So they're, they're going to have to re- increase rates, which reduces bond prices. So how does that look long term? Because you're mentioning, you know, 2030 is kind of the number. You don't see us making it there. So how does that look for 
the average person? How is that going to affect us personally if that crisis happens, how you're kind of predicting it will? Well, the most, you know, the easiest way out of it, which I think is going to happen is like I'm just saying, it's going to result in inflation. They're going to inflate their, try and inflate their, which is, which in it, it, which is really a default. And so it's going to lead to all kinds of problems, a lot of social unrest, um, and, you know, I mean, I'm only speculating like everyone else, all the, all the issues that will arise. But the best we can do is prepare now. If you're a young person, get the best education and training you can and always be thinking about a plan B. Mm-hmm. You know, do well in school if you're, you know, in college or, or, or high school. And get yourself in the best, because there will always be a demand for, for services and, and goods. You know, human needs are insatiable. So... And then if, if you're in your young and middle age, if you're an income earner, I hope you're setting money aside. Be investing it. What should you be putting it in? I would not be putting it just in an index fund and letting it ride and depend on dollar cost averaging to, uh, to take you through and have a larger nest egg at the end. Um, find a good money manager who, who is the manager of those funds, not a passive manager, but an active manager and who can know where to go. Um, right now I'm heavily invested in commodities. I mean, gold and silver and, uh, and incidentally, another leading indicator is copper. We look at Dr. Copper as an indicator of what th- things might come in. Talk copper right now is tanking. Oh, by interesting. The way. Yeah. Um, another indicator, federal revenues, um, Increasing federal revenues are not increasing; they're decreasing. If we had an expanding economy, we wouldn't be having revenues go down; we'd be having them go up. Um, so, back to your question, uh, I, th- I think gold, um, small percentage of it, should be in bullion, so in, stored in a in a good place. I like gold uh, eagles, American eagle, one ounce eagles, because they're about the most liquid form of gold you can buy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when things go down and you lose, lose the electricity or, you know, things are in chaos, maybe you can exchange that for something else and go buy your groceries or, you know, or buy silver eagles. Um, and those you should have as a small portion of your investment. And then what I do, I, I aim for like between 5 and like 15% in precious metals that I buy. I'm a trader more than an investor. Mm-hmm. So I... You know, I, I buy and sell, you know, depending on what the charts are showing me. And then, um, and, but that's where, that's my largest portion of my portfolio right now. And then, um, there's always going to be good sectors to invest in. And that's why you need a good money manager to, to manage your portfolio. And you'll do well. I look at it as a, a period of opportunity because with, with these trying times that are sure to come, um, right now, the uh, the uh, Standard and Poor's 500 is around 4,300, 4,400. Um, we will be we'll be going below the COVID lows, which was around 2,300 in the next couple of years. That's my forecast, and mm-hmm. you can hold me to that forecast. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's but, your... but but with that, see, there comes opportunities. So hopefully you'll be more in cash and then be able to take advantage of those opportunities for short-term bounces. What do you think about all of this push toward digital 
banking in a central bank and, you know, doing everything digitally, social credit scores. Do you see us ever moving in the direction of, you know, unless you're meeting certain social statuses and cooperating the way government sees you should be cooperating, that you won't be able to actually function monetarily in society. I mean, we see it already in places like China. Do you see that coming here? Well, uh, hopefully there's enough of us that can get legislation passed to, to prohibit that. In fact, I saw a bill in Congress last week that I'm not sure where it got. Republicans have to be in charge, <laughs> but but hopefully we can we can stop that. Although I should be, given the way we've been going the last few years, uh, that may not be the case. And so yes, it's a real threat. Yeah, you know, unless if we can stop it legislatively. Right. I mean, it is right now. I believe it's beyond the purview of the Fed, the Fed to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. I think it violates their charter if they do that. Right. Um, so I'm not sure. I'm no. I know there's a real, a real push to do that, go in that direction, mm-hmm. and and it would be terrible, absolutely terrible. Look, when you have the Fed, and the Fed is nothing more than ex- even though they're private entity, they're nothing but an, an extension of the federal government. Right. Because that's an argument I hear a lot is, you know, when people say, talk about the Fed, well, that's not government. So, it, I mean, essentially yeah. it still is an extension though, like you're hey, saying, even hey, though it's... Listen, they implement, it's all political. Right. I mean, it's, if it wasn't for the Fed, the, the, the deficit wouldn't be where it is. They accommodate. It's because of the Fed being able to to do what they do to buy up balance sheets off the Treasury that that they're you know the Treasury is where it, where it is so much in the deficit. Um, you know, if you go back, uh, um, you know, during the Greenspan area, the '90s, early 2000s, you know, he had this ZERP policy, the zero interest rate policy where he wanted to put rates down close to zero as he could and hold them there because it was supposed to spur the economy. But what that did is it made government funding cheap. You know, they could borrow all they wanted and send business and corporations as well. Mm-hmm. And it didn't cost them hardly anything. There was, there was no interest rate hardly to pay on. And so that encouraged so much malinvestment on the private side and so much over-government spending on the public side. Yeah, I mean, the Federal Reserve is culpable. They were implementing government policy. And, yeah, they're a private entity, but, but, uh, but in my opinion, they've done a lot more harm than good. Absolutely. Uh, let me just take a minute and explain why. Okay. Because, you know, the business cycles in the economy have always been there. And they're there for a reason, because as Joseph Schupeter, Schupeter an economist 100 years ago, pointed out that it, it's a way that, you know, as we have these downturns, you know, bankruptcies and downturns and layoffs, and then, you know, government uh, businesses uh, go insolvent. It's a way that the economy becomes more efficient because it leaves the strongest players in place. And it it puts us into an upper upward trajectory overall as the as technology has to increase as business has to find most efficient ways to produce 
And, but if you get in the way of that business cycle by keeping interest rates low, you have all this malinvestment. Now you come up with all these zombie companies and, and they multiply. And so what happens when the eventual fall comes, it's much worse. And that's where we are now mm. because of what the Federal Reserve has been doing. Every business cycle, when there's threats of, of destruction, you know, that they step in, they you know, interest rates go to zero, they monetize debt. And, um, and so in, in doing this, what's over the last 20 years, a lot of this monetization, though, and, all, and a lot of this uh, the benefit of these interest rates have been trapped in financial markets. Right. They haven't gone out. The benefit hasn't gone out to the pub, to the, you know, the, the spender. Mm-hmm. And so what's happened is it's been the owner of, of, of those uh, equities that have benefited the most. And who are the owners? It's the upper income. Yeah. You know, they own, uh, you know, 95% of the wealth. And right. so we have this great wealth divide that's expanding bigger and bigger and which is going to be the source of more social unrest. What's right. that caused by? It's not caused by tax rates being not high enough. It's caused by the Federal Reserve, mm-hmm. this zero interest rate policy, encourage malinvestment with benefit being in the, in the, financial, uh, in the financial sector and the benefits rolling to the upper income class. And that's why you've had this divide yeah. that's it's, it's expanding. And they, can, they will be increasing in, uh, tax rates, Democrat, but that's not the solution to bring about a more equitable uh, you know, society. Right. Well, and speaking of that class divide, you know, a big thing that I hear candidates here locally talk about is affordable housing and what they're going to do as a government representative to help affordable housing. So back to economics 101, what are your thoughts with affordable housing and government's involvement there? And how do we help the the housing situation as we do see this separation of classes get even more drastic? Well, you know, throughout the country, you see examples of public housing. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, New York where rents are controlled and, you know, subsidies. I'm not for it. I, th- I think that there's, I think it creates a lot more harm than good. Absolutely. Um, it, uh, uh, I think you got to let the market take care of it. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you can encourage uh, developers to come in, but they have to have a profit motive to do it. Right. You know, and it shouldn't be done through subsidies, mm-hmm. but, you know, just through zoning. Yeah, I think just getting government red tape out of the way. There's so many that could cut a lot of time and expense right there for developers by government just taking a step back and saying, yeah, do what, do what you will. You want to build a lower cost product, do it. Right. That, that there is, is the most, uh, that's the best way to go about doing it is, uh, not necessarily through, uh, through government stepping in and filling in the gap. Right. I, I, I really have strong feelings about that. Uh, because in the long run, it, it, it creates too many, too many disincentives and, and mal investments and, and, uh, it's, uh, it's to our benefit as a community, if we want to keep our environment, you know, our financial environment, our economy going here, that we don't, we don't allow government to get too big. Right. In, involved in, in, in private industry. 
Because every I, government solution creates another problem, it, <laughs> in it, my experience. It, exactly. And I would say the same thing with Tech Ridge and, you know, just step back, create the environment where, you know, business, uh, home building can succeed. Mm -hmm. And if it can't concede, uh, succeed, then it shouldn't be here. Right. But and then and then consumers, they step up to do what they have to do, you know, yeah. to to either just settle on something less. You know, they're going forward, you know, debt is nothing more more than claims on on future earnings. Future. Right. So you're so. So we're down to just a few seconds left. We'll probably need a part two. But just final thoughts on what you would recommend for people moving forward? Um, prepare for bad times to come, but be <laughs> optimistic in your personal life as you do so to, to treat it as an opportunity. Awesome. Not, Thanks not for as... being a part of the Michelle Tanner podcast. Please like, follow, subscribe, and share. And always remember to keep exposing truth. But I won't back down. No, I won't back down. This has been a production from a podcast studio.